Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. We all know how difficult it can be to navigate the increasingly complex world of higher education administration and college athletics. Now imagine navigating those worlds in the South as an openly gay man. That's been the challenging journey for Dr. Britt Katz, the Vice President of Student Life and the Dean of Students at Millsaps College in Mississippi. Dr. Katz is an openly gay man and outspoken advocate for LGBTQ rights. And in 2016, he was named the new chair of the NCAA Division III Management Council. And we are absolutely delighted to have Dr. Britt Katz with us today. Nice to have you with us. It's a great honor to be with you, Jack Ford. You're a legend in uh, media and broadcasting, and what a thrill for me to be here in your company. Usually my mother says that, Britt, so it's nice to hear it from somebody that I'm not related to. Well, actually, it was your mother who asked me to say it. (laughs) Thanks so much, Jack. Indeed. Um, there's so much I want to talk with you about, and, and I, I want to get in a few minutes into your growing up and your experiences and the changes in the culture that you've seen over the years. But let me start with the, the bigger picture, if I can. Um, you, you speak openly and frequently um, about your experiences as a gay man in the world of higher education. Um, why is it, and your challenges that you've experienced during the course of your life, why is it so important to you? To, to get out there and to, to give that message so openly and so frequently. My field has a great deal to do with my life choices. One cannot be a successful vice president for student life on some campuses known as student affairs without a great deal of authenticity in the manner with which you deport yourself, with which you comport your daily choices and behaviors and statements as a leader in adult young adult student development. I must be someone who... Uh, provides easy inclusion, celebration for all women and men, making certain that through my own ability to reflect who I am and what I am to society, I want my students to walk in and be able to talk with me openly about who they are. If I were inauthentic, I could not lead a, a group of diverse women and men in a division of student life, student development, student affairs and in representing an increasingly pluralistic demographic of undergraduate and graduate students without me being able to represent my community to them and then inviting them to represent all that they are to me. I'm sure it's been a, a, a curious and sometimes difficult journey for you. So let's let's start at, at a good place to start is at the beginning. All right. Yeah. So uh, where'd you grow up? I'm, I was born in Starkville, Mississippi, mm-hmm. the grandson of an All-American football player. Really? From, from, played to, where? Played at Tulane University, at Tulane? played for the national championship in 1940 against uh, Texas A&M. They lost by one point, 14 to 13. But my grandfather was an All-American and All-SEC conference right. football player because Tulane was a member of the SEC in those days. And I can always tell that with the people from the South because what, they pronounce it Tulane. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. Those of us up north are probably saying too late. Yes, but and clearly we're 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 not right. Yes, I regret that you. Yeah, I regret <laughs> that you have not yet gotten the intonation <laughs> down. Uh, Jack, you, stick with me. I'll help you. I'm going to walk away from this conversation with a lot of newfound knowledge and understanding experience. And one of them, minor one, one of those is going to be. I know now how to pronounce too late. Well, do you say New Orleans or New Orleans? I, I'm good about that. I say New Orleans. Oh, good. Thank All you. Right. I'm getting there. Thank you. You're going to help my education here, Brett. So, so talk with me about when you first became aware of your own sexuality and how did that happen? I was probably seven or eight when I recognized significant difference in the way that I thought. 
But in the Deep South, Want wants very much to conform to a standard that is based around heteronormativity. I should have asked you, what time frame are we talking about? When were you born? Oh, I was born in 1957. Okay. So this is in the mid-60s, and the nation's already going through a period of tumult. And so if I can use that uh, tumultuous period as sort of metaphor for my own upbringing, I wanted very much to be the patriotic Southern boy. I'm reared in a uh, traditional Christian household with two high-achieving parents who are, were delightfully in love with each other until my father passed after 54 years of their marriage, mm. and the grandson of an All-American football player, the son of a woman who was all-conference high school basketball player, and an all-conference baseball player in high school for my father. So which, sports which created, I would think, an enormous set of expectations yes. for you across it, the board. Yes, and I wanted very much to attain uh, those levels of acceptance, both from blood kin and from my peer group. And so I did my best to... And and acceptance is so important for young people that age, right? You're not ready to break boundaries and and go off and and rocketing off in your own different directions when you're that young. No, in fact, I was studying studying, uh, the uh, boys around me to make certain I did exactly what was expected of me. Didn't always succeed because of, I think, the DNA difference makes their just inclinations. You probably want to speak to the world outwardly in a different way. Your uh, affectations or tics might be slightly different because of the orientation, but I was an assiduous study. And so I made certain that I wore navy blues and grays and browns and whites, did not ever wear bright or vivid colors up in the time I got through grad school. I made a point to um, study the manner with which uh, men conducted themselves in groups of other men, how they held themselves up physically, what effect they might exhibit when they heard a joke, what um, uh, they wanted to talk about most often. And even though those things were not necessarily my natural inclinations, even at the age of 14 or 15, I could probably tell you what was playing on, in a Broadway musical showhouse. I um, went ahead with it. And uh, I will say that uh, love of sports was part of just a natural family situation because we watched sports in person and on television and listened to it on the radio throughout my youth. So that value was inculcated early and it was a natural love. But acting like other um, young boys did and teenage men, that didn't come naturally to me. I had to work at it. It's hard being a 14-year-old boy under any circumstance. Yeah. So how, how much more difficult it was for you then that you had to essentially watch and learn and kind of almost superimpose on you something that you weren't. That's right. And so I, um, I was successful at it because until the time I was 14, I wasn't feeling that I was accepted by my all-male circles. There was some level of ostracism or isolation. And between 14 and 15, something clicked. I cannot tell you what I superimposed successfully, but I learned how to play the game literally and metaphorically with male and female peers, and I began to win popularity contests and get invited to join to the cliques and into the uh, secret societies that make high school and college so much fun if you're accepted. That was uh, reassuring, although the validation was coming totally from external sources and I wasn't feeling a congruence with who I was internally. That's problematic. It makes you feel even more bifurcated and suicidal when you recognize that the expectation of the world can never match what I feel for myself in terms of my heart and soul. Did you ever find yourself actually suicidal? Many times. Many times. And And how did you deal with that? How did you get through that? Religion and love of family, uh, uh, 
a, famil a familially established value that suicide is an act of selfishness that would be imposed upon the few people that love you deeply and unconditionally. And I, so I would pray to Jesus because I am a Christian, though I respect all the world's great faith traditions. I could easily be telling you I prayed to, pray to Allah or to Jehovah or to the Almighty. But in this instance, I was praying to Jesus and the voice just came back and said, my son, my son, I have not asked you to be perfect, but perfect yourself in me in whatever way you can. I have not asked you to be perfect, but perfect yourself in whatever way you can through me. That helped me prevent offing myself in the many times I thought about it because I could not reconcile what I knew about myself with what I knew the world wanted from me. And I wanted to win those popularity contests. I wanted to be elected officer in my fraternity and to be a student body officer for uh, the university and to be promoted in my career. 35 years ago when I started, you couldn't talk about being gay openly and hope that you would keep employment and climb a ladder. Now that I've been dean for 20 plus years and I'm a vice president for the last 14, doing my best to make certain the doors are opened for women, persons of color, persons from minority sexual orientation, and all the traditionally ostracized or marginalized populations that want so desperately to be part of the greater whole. Let me talk about it again how different it is now from what it was back then. And you touched on it a little bit here. So, so you described, you know, part of, of your high school experience. You, you get to college at Mississippi State, yeah. right? What's your life like now in Mississippi State deeply, as a student? Deeply closeted. I was a very good student, but could have been a phenomenal student to get so much of my intellectual energy was focused on the conformity. You see, I was using all that intellectual inspiration it was distraction from the books because I knew that every moment had to be guarded. Every statement was measured out. Every uh, uh, every part of my body language was manipulated, even calculated before I said it. I thought about every sentence before I would register so with you. So spontaneity almost was, was not part of your repertoire. Spontaneity was not part of my vocabulary. Could not be spontaneous for fear that anything awkward or that might cause um, the typical man or woman in Mississippi to raise a left or right eyebrow to look at you scan. And that happens sometimes. So I knew I'd made the mistake because the affect. Would you automatic. get that sense? Would you get a sense that somebody is looking at you differently and you'd say to yourself, I let my guard down yes. here somehow, yes. somehow my mask slipped that's and exactly somebody right. now suspects. That's exactly right. And so I would, I, I, when you sensed the recoil, particularly on the part of men, you knew you, you had a lesson, an education at that moment, and you had to quickly recall what was it I said or did, or was there an intonation in the manner with which I said it that caused them to be uh, affected, and you tried to correct it for the next time. So I was an A-B student, but I easily look back and think college would have been so much more pleasant had I spent more time thinking exactly about what was on the printed page and not so much about how I had to address what I wore, how I was going to act, and how I'd conduct a conversation the next morning. So when then, in the course of your journey, did you say, this is who I am, and, and this is the person that I am going to let the world now see and hopefully understand and certainly hopefully appreciate? When did that happen? October of 19... 96. Are you ready for this? Um, I had the right supervisor at the right university. I want to give dual credit to uh, Vice President Francis Lucas, who was my direct supervisor. I was a dean at Emory University in Atlanta. And uh, to my horror, 
and I say this word carefully, Emory University professionals took one look at me and they just assumed that I possessed minority sexual orientation because I was in my mid-30s, wasn't dating, wasn't married, had no children, and I so was... So you kind of fit the, the definition. I was fitting into their definition, but it was a kind definition. For the first time in my life at Emory University, there was no association of a negative sort with the minority sexual orientation. I was Why do you think astonished. that was? I mean, you're still down south. And I, look, I don't mean to indict the south because there's certainly marvelous values and experiences come from the south. But the south in many ways was, was not as tolerant perhaps as other parts of the country. Why do you think here you are at Emory University in Atlanta, in Georgia, and why do you think there was this more embracing culture there? A different culture of scholars. Women and men who worked at Emory on staff and faculty were largely not from the South and or who had an educational background if they were from the South that made them comfortable with human difference. So it was not just gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender issues on which they were so much more progressive. This was a level of cult acculturation and education that made you more comfortable with gender equity, with racial equity, with uh, discussing uh, permanent and temporary visible and invisible disabilities where non-Christian uh, religions flourished and sometimes no religion at all. And those and those forms of difference in both the terms of uh, human DNA, but also in terms of cultures, was just part of the norm, normative behavior. And they looked at me and decided, well, they presumed I was gay and just began to make open reference to it, which caused a period. How of did you react to that? How shock. did you react to, to people who it's now clear to you they are presuming who you are, yeah. which happens to be exactly who you are. Yes. But you've been concealing that for so long. Yes. So how did how did you respond to that? Well, there was an, uh, there was a period of six months of great depression and shock where I was going through a channel of self understanding that uh, I can no longer hide it, and do I need to? So with Doctor Lucas's uh, overt instruction, I entered six years of uh, significant psychotherapy to cross the divide without again, contemplating suicide because the years of hiding had taken a cumulative toll on who I was emotionally, physically, uh, religiously. And the six years of therapy, though, helped me uh, truly cross the chasm. And at that point, during that six years, I began to do the presentations, began to uh, be more visible to my students and to my colleagues across the South, and led me uh, ultimately to Millsaps College 14 years ago, where the staff, faculty knew of me, and it's probably the only place in Mississippi I could work where I would have been invited back after having been an activist and presenting workshops why and do you, why, do you, why do you say that? Why do you think that is? Um, Millsaps is, has always been regarded as a more progressive and uh, dynamic type of institution for human difference. It's a bit more difficult for the public institutions in Mississippi to break out of a culturally expected norm. There's a, a bell curve of behavior that probably is more preferred. Ole Miss and State and Southern would probably like to claim that they are more progressive than the outlying communities. That's true. But Millsaps goes beyond those three institutions to welcome women and men. And I was invited there. I'm probably the first openly gay vice president and dean in the history of Mississippi higher education. I didn't know how long it would last, but 14 years in, they still have me there. <laughs> they still have you there, and you're still doing a lot with it. So... Your peer, your epiphany, if you will, you're, you're, you're saying, I am now ready to accept who I am and say to people, this is what my life is going to be, and I hope you'll accept me too. It happens in 1996. 
because of a connection that you have with somebody who's willing to embrace you, do you think it could have happened in in the South um, 10 years earlier than that? Or do you think that the time was very important in being the right time for you? I don't even know if it would have happened in 2006 if I hadn't had the right supervisor and the right uh, working environment without a confluence of factors that lead to you feeling comfortable enough to embrace the world in a different way. It can delay your development forever, which is why my work is so powerful now. I am living proof that you can make a difference as an educator, as a mentor in higher education, in helping women and men find themselves and then flourish by giving them the types of challenges and supports they need to get to a college degree and then to go make a life. And without that, I could I don't know that I would have advanced if I thought that I would not ever be employed again. Do you think that that you would not have been as good at what you do as as somebody who is not just technically a dean, but somebody who provides guidance and even inspiration and certainly um, helps to to other people to navigate difficult paths? Do you think if you hadn't had such a difficult journey yourself that you would not have been as good as you are now? There's no question that the epiphany has made me an authentic and more multidimensional professional. And that makes me better in serving students because I'm not hiding anything. There were moments when I wanted to make a really good, tough leadership decision and would have sleepless nights for fearing that I could be outed or blackmailed. And what a terrible position in which if you feel like you are in any way principled or that you wish to espouse a cause, that you've got others out there who would be mean-spirited enough to throw it in your face. And I have known of colleagues who were members of the LGBT community who had some issue dredged up and used against them in their employment. And it had a very deleterious effect. And for me, uh, I'm not proud of this, that I have lived lived a pretty um, antiseptic life in effort to please um, all persons around me. But I have led a life that has not laid me open to any type of ugly, vicious blackmail. And as a result, I've watched this, though, happen to other good, high-achieving people. And I know that uh, if I could not have crossed this bridge in a more authentic life through Francis, Lucas, and Emery, there's no telling where what I might be doing or how I'd be doing it now. I am better as a person. I'm better as a professional. I'm a better brother, son, partner as a result of now finding all parts of myself and trying to integrate them into a life. And I watch young men and women who are suffering from a deconstructed existence that leads them into alcohol dependency, drug abuse, sexual promiscuity, and or other areas in which they're trying to escape because their work experience, their school experience, their family experience, their religious experience doesn't allow them to integrate who they are with all the external things that guide their life. You, you've had this successful professional life as, a, as an administrator and leader in higher education, but you've also been very actively involved in the world of student-athletes, actively yes. involved in the NCAA. As I mentioned, uh, 2016 named the chair of the NCAA Division III um, Management Council, I believe the first vice president ever to be named to that chair. So That's clearly, my understanding. So clearly there is a, there's a, a recognition of the value you bring to the world of college sports. sports. Have you found any particular resistance amongst people in the world of student-athletes, the world of college sports, because of who you are and, and how openly you've embraced now who you are? Not openly. 
I think that we would know that in the span of human behavior and in the reactions you get from even very educated people, that there are just still some primal fears that can cause uh, reactions. You may ask me to provide an example of that concept, and I would suggest that in some small ways, restrooms are one. Yeah, I'm, I uh, know that there are some men that would feel uncomfortable entering a restroom at the same time I do. I don't deny them their fear. I understand where it comes from. It's an otherness that they're trying to decipher, decode, and uh, live peacefully uh, with. But at the same time, I can't let it stop me from going into a restroom. I need to, if I need to use a restroom, I've got to go in. And if they wait until I exit, I understand that. Those are small sorts of moments that, you know, build. Perhaps if you use it properly, you can build some comedy out of it rather than worry about um, the, the issue and, and stew in it, resent it, worry about it. I like to make comedy from some of these moments, and uh, but in general, the overt nature with which I feel that higher education exists around me is largely welcoming, largely inclusive, and how for the first time in the 21st century, uh, what I can contribute to an understanding of the LGBTQIA population seems to be actively invited. I'm living my nirvana. I never thought when I was younger that this would ever happen or that I might ever uh, be sought out to speak um, in some way to bring this area of diversity to a greater level of public awareness. So what are you able to say now because of your own journey, uh, where you started from, where you are now, to a, a young student athlete, male or female, who comes in to see you, and you can tell they're being tortured in the way that you were when you were a young person, that they're struggling with trying to understand who they are, who they should be. What are you able to, to say to them now, do you think, because of, of your experiences? Well, the, the question is so profound that I want to get, I want to be more emotive and sentimental with the response. But actually, I go to a more pragmatic uh, type of level in answering. And that is when you know that someone's struggling, the first thing you do is close the door and say, if you want to talk to me, everything you say to me is completely confidential. I am bound by a code of ethics as a professional administrator and paraprofessional counselor from ever revealing a single syllable you breathe to me. So let's start at that level. Do you want to talk? And there are moments when students don't want to say anything to me then. The fear of uh, self-awareness and then the fear of being outed to the greater world consume you. Absolutely will eat away at your soul and give you ulcers if you fret over it long enough. But on the second or third visit, uh, many students will want to sit down with me, and I do my best to provide the Coke or the cup of coffee. If they want the sweet roll, we'll order it up and we'll sit down. And I've even invited students to come back to see me late at night because they just fret over being in my office during the workday and want people wondering, what are you seeing the dean about? So if they come at 7, 8, or 9 o'clock, we can sit down uninterrupted for an hour, an hour and a half. And I have had numerous uh, scholar-athletes, as well as just students in general who want to talk to me about this passage in which they're reluctant passengers initially. And I know it will take years for some of them and longer because of religious, family, and cultural issues in the Deep South. But if I can provide some moment of relief and respite from the angst, I am so honored that they would want to sit down with me even for five minutes and let me be part of that with them. 
and if I can prevent them from a sense of hopelessness or despair and let them know that, um, look at me, I'm nothing special. Uh, listen, I'm just a short guy, a balding, you know, who <laughs> just came from good stock, but stock is the operative word. And uh, if I can stay alive to this point and, and live a life and work a life and find a job that likes me and that I like it, you can too. I promise you. I said, hang on, look at what might happen. Are you, last question for you, having having traveled the, the path that you've traveled, the journey that you've traveled, where you are now, as you look at what's unfolding around us, are you optimistic? For, for it, Would you be optimistic for a young Brit Katz today that he is going to have a, a better, better path, um, less obstacles, less of the otherness stamped upon him so that he's going to have the, the capability much earlier than you did to live the life that he wants to live? Yes. I had no role models that I can recall when I was in my youth. Uh, the one uh, icon in the sports community that we knew of was gay was Bill Tilden, the tremendous tennis champion, but the biographies were written in quite a negative way. His hidden life made it sound like he borderline was ill. And if you looked at television, film, books, Pulp Fiction, uh, homosexuals and bisexuals were painted as uh, deviant, mentally ill individuals. Now, just turn on your television, go to a movie theater, go to a Broadway show or open a book, and there are just tremendous numbers of high-achieving intellects. Women and men that are not in any way afraid to disclose who they are, and they're celebrated in large crowd settings and are winning the accolades for which they are due. And at the same time, they happen to be persons who possess minority sexual orientation. And um, I want to mention a particular person that must have tremendous stress in her life. But Laverne Cox, who has now won two Screen Actors Guild Awards as a transgender woman for her work in Orange is the New Black and has had a major supporting role in a recent NBC situation comedy. I salute her for being on the cusp of the new part of the movement. Uh, the lesbian, gay, and bisexual adults who still haven't found equity and equality yet, but are uh, striving forward and, uh, quickly. Now the transgender individuals and the cisgender individuals who want desperately to be understood and embraced, they are finding their place in American culture and society. I could not be happier for them. And Laverne is um, the emblem of that part of the civil rights movement. and. President Obama, what he did for LGBT persons by announcing before he got elected, he took the stage and asked for, no more than tolerance, he asked for acceptance for LGBT persons, and he had nothing to gain and everything to lose as he stood up at microphones from coast to coast to say, we may question why some individuals fall in love with someone of the same gender, but questioning does not mean it leads to isolation, ostracism, um, despoilation of someone's character. Let's welcome them as family. Wow, what a moment for me. And I'm over 50, but I cannot forget these cataclysmic changes in the way that America has viewed the LGBT community. And um, I'm nothing um, uh, in it, but I will do my best to be more visible and uh, contributor to what my youth need in all areas of human difference, including the LGBT community, for whatever years I've got left in my industry. Yeah. 
Dr. Britt Katz, I want to thank you for spending some time with us, sharing us thoughts about your journey, where you are now, and your optimism for, for young people and what can be done for them. Britt, thank you so much. You'd be well. Jack, thank you. I am sitting here with a broadcasting <laughs> legend. Talk oh, about a, a gay kid who never thought I would have a moment to sit down with a Jack Ford. This is astonishing. <laughs> Let me thank tell you. you. It, it's been my honor. Thank you again for spending some time with us. And I, I tell you, you talked about Millsaps and how lucky you are to be there. I will tell you that they are very lucky to have you there for all you can contribute that, to them. That's very there. generous. Okay. I'm the they are, they, I've been there 14 very, very happy years, and I'm going back tomorrow night for one of the major awards functions that um, I have helped create. And I'm delighted to tell you that an African-American woman who is also a lesbian is going to win our, large, our biggest award for social justice and change uh, at that occasion. And what a way to end this interview by telling you that in 2017, uh, such a celebration can occur around a young woman of color who lives for a cause and just wants to be loved in return. And that's something for us all to celebrate. Thank you, Jack. Britt, thanks again. You be well. That does it for us for today. I'm Jack Ford. I hope you join us again sometime soon on the College Sports Insider.